This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here today, ready to dance on glass. Got my motorcycle. I got my switchblade. James, we've got a handful of grease, so our hair feels right. Uh, assuming I had hair, yeah, my hypothetical hair feels wonderful. <laughs> back once again, we've got our good friend, Mr. James Buckley, lawyer and drummer extraordinaire from Louisiana. James, how you doing today? I'm wonderful, guys, and during the usual summer heat wave, and glad to be back on screen with you fellas. It's good to have you back. I'm excited to hear your opinion on this album. We are comparing this album to the White Snake 1987 album. If you want to hear our opinions on those songs and the stories behind all of them, please go back and check out our last episode. But today we are jumping in on Girls, Girls, Girls. We are going to be talking about Motley Crue again. We have covered Motley Crue before whenever we did Dr. Feel Good versus Skid Row, Skid Row. So we w- I went into a great deal of history, so you can go back and check that one out on our Dr. Feel Good track-by-track episode. We will, of course, be getting into all kinds of other stories today. But this album basically starts off with... Nikki Six dying and being thrown in a dumpster. And then when the album's over and the tour is over, he's dead again. Book ended with Nikki Six's death on both sides of this album. Yep, absolutely. And that second death is what spawned them to finally come clean and uh, record Dr. Feelgood. But this is the album that they recorded the opposite of sober, whatever that word might be. It is unclean, if you will. They were buried in drugs at this time. Okay, D, the executive producer for this episode is our good new friend, Mr. Adam Mascheski. Yeah, Adam was the one who had done our Shirley Showcase last That's right. week, and he came on and joined the Patreon, joined the $10 a month. That's the Lewis Winthorpe level. Can't tell you how much we appreciate that donation. It will help us out bringing these episodes to you every week. If you want to join our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. It's been said before that there's a lot of filler on this album. The fact that they wrote any good songs at all is incredible. Here is what Doug Thaler, their manager, they had Doc McGee and Doug Thaler. This is what he said about the album. Nikki was normally a talented and prolific songwriter, but he just couldn't write enough good songs for Girls, Girls, Girls. You want the truth? Tom Worman made that record. We even had to include a live track, Jailhouse Rock, on the album. Nikki wrote one song in a key that Vince couldn't even sing in, and some of his lyrics were absolute dreck. One day, he came in wasted, and he'd written a song called Hollywood Night that was just so bad. Really, really horrible. Every day, heroin, booze, zombie dust. But, I mean, there have been a lot of great albums written with all of those factors involved. We just have to answer the question, is this one of them? Okay, well, we're going to break it down. This album was released May 15th, 1987. So, just a little bit after the White Snake album was released, like a month and a half. This album debuted... At number two. At number one was Whitney Houston's second album called Whitney. Yep. Nikki Six and Doc McGee feels like they got screwed on this deal. This is the days when record stores would just kind of report back numbers. Like we sold this many. There wasn't that scan code and all that stuff. And they were being told at the time that they were outselling everything two to one. And then all of a sudden, the Whitney Houston people took all the A&R people out on this cruise and vacation and wined and dined them. And then what do you know, Whitney Houston's album is the number one album in the country. Yeah. And then later on, Whitesnake has the number two album, 
while Motley Crue has the number three album. And so for the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, they got Whitesnake in to open, but Whitesnake was actually the more popular band. And they were originally just going to play a few early dates, but Doug Thaler and Doc McGee decided to increase their pay from 4000 per night to 10000 per night. And so they stayed through October. Okay. Let's say that again, because for our younger listeners, that might be striking because at that moment, in the fall of 1987, Whitesnake was more popular than Motley Crue. James, am I wrong? Uh, no, and having seen that tour, I understand why. Whitesnake were definitely firing on all cylinders at the time. The crew seemed to be kind of going through the motions, except for the, you know, obviously the backup girls on stage and Tommy's drum solo. From everything I've read, I'm surprised this album was able to be recorded at all. I'm pretty sure if it were subjected to a drug test, it would have failed. <laughs> That's true. So this album was produced by Tom Worman. This is the same guy who produced Stay Hungry by Twisted Sister. He did Cocktail Loaded by L.A. Guns. He did Shout at the Devil, Theater of Pain, Motley Crue's previous albums. He did Open Up and Say Ah by Poison. He did Cat Scratch Fever by Ted Nugent. Yep. He did some stuff by Cheap Trick. I mean, this guy was a prominent producer at the time. Major player. And Doug Thaler says the guy who was responsible for this album. Notice he did not come back as producer for Dr. Feelgood. No, they were ready to be done with him and they had moved on to Bob Rock at that point. Yep. Okay, are we ready to dive in track by track? Let's jump in track by track. Coming hard out of the gate. Song number one, Wild Side. <laughs> Dude, you asked me how I was coming on these songs and what I thought of the album. And I said, well, you got some rockers, you got some skippers, and you got some songs about strippers. <laughs> this is most definitely a rock. Oh, this is one of the best starting tracks ever. One of the best Motley Crue songs. Mick Mars came up with just that incredible guitar riff, which you, you notice there's no guitar solo in the song, but you don't really need it because Mick keeps that going steadily throughout the whole song. Yeah, that guitar comes in like the revving of an engine and then blasts in with Tommy's drums into that incredible riff. It is, Mick Mars is the driving force on this song. And my opinion, number one song in the album by far. By far the number Ooh. one song in the album. Ooh. Okay, we'll have to talk about that. I talked to about seven buddies of mine who were all talented guitarists. And to a man, the word they used describing Mick Mars was underrated. And I think he is definitely the unsung hero of this album. Dude, he is a musical genius. And it's funny because knowing the history, I mean, he was a little older or a lot older because we don't know whether he was born in 1950 or 1955. <laughs> There's right. like some confusion about the year he was born by five years. But he had been through the ringer. I mean, he had been through band after band after band before joining these guys. And he had lived in the gutter. I mean, he had child support he had to pay. He had a wife he had to support. And he had... No money. I mean, he's living on the streets, basically, getting rides from other people. Didn't even have a car. Then he joins this band. His skills were on point and yeah. remained so throughout the tenure. It seems to me that that gap in time allowed him to mature musically. You know, they have a bunch of young punks, and then you have a mature guitar player who's bringing these great riffs. Yeah. So this song started from an interesting place. It did. You told this story on the <laughs> Dr. Feelgood episode. We've got to tell it again. Yeah. Okay. So got to tell it again. So January of 87, Nikki said, 
six is watching a young groupie who has come to see him over the lunch break put her Catholic school girl uniform back on. He said she would come over and she was very friendly. <laughs> and then she's putting a uniform back on. So you do the math, right? Seems like she's uh, still in high school. That, that is that that sounds like it would be correct. <laughs> yes. I don't think any college kids are wearing the Catholic school girl uniforms while she's getting dressed. Nikki's laying there and he says, is the Lord's prayer important. And she's like, yeah, of course it's important to me. It's important for the whole religion. Right. And he's like, okay, great. And then he takes her on his motorcycle and drops her back off at the school and has the nuns scowling at him because obviously <laughs> he's this unwashed, leather-bound rocker. And he said, I wonder what they would think if they knew what I was about to do to the Lord's Prayer. So he actually asked her to show it to him in her Bible. Yeah. Nikki Six wrote Wildside after reading the Lord's Prayer from the Holy Bible. Yep. So that little tryst was January 29th, 1987, January 30th, 1987. Nikki laid around naked playing guitar and writing music, and he wrote these lyrics Our Father, who ain't in heaven, be thy name on the wild side. Holy Mary Mother, may I. Pray for us on the wild side. We start off with a felony and blasphemy. <laughs> I read a review from back in 1987 when it was released, and some guy in some magazine said the problem with this album is it starts off with two awesome tracks, and it's really hard for the rest to even compare to it. Well, that's where he talked about he was casually seeing a Catholic schoolgirl. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not sure the law would see it so casually, but hey, yeah. Right. Later, legal's never been my thing. So, <laughs> hey, one thing on Becky, she was the daughter of a prominent Hollywood actress. We don't know. I tried to find out who that was. Like, who are we talking about here? Yeah. Could not find it. He goes so far as to mention that specifically, but as of yet, nobody knows who that is. And that's probably best for him that nobody ever find out. Yikes. In our state, statute of limitations is 30 years, so he may be okay in Louisiana. <laughs> Some of the ideas on this song is based on the Lou Reed song, Wildside. Oh, okay. I think this, from a musical standpoint, this is one of the most creative they got on the album because you go from two distinct feels. You got that driving four on the floor feel they played during the verses and a lot of the solo. And then a couple of parts during the bridge and the closing, they pretty seamlessly switched to this kind of bouncy shuffle type feel. And for the crew to go between two different feels like that, I was actually impressed. Yeah, this is the album that they certainly injected a lot more blues into. You know, initially when they came out, they were kind of this combination of punk, glam, and metal. And then they kind of steadily moved into into more of the glam metal and by the time they got to this album they had gone to the the rougher you know they took off the makeup and started growing the stubble and now we're kind of the bad boy look and more of the blues feel uh more of a rock metal than anything else i remember telling you the story that they would make fun of vince for taking a shower <laughs> <laughs> there were lots of times when I read the heroin diaries where he talks about, I went eight days without a shower. I went 11 days without a shower. It's so gross. It's disgusting. Yeah. Nikki six said he would go down sunset Boulevard. He had a black Mercedes 
with dark tinted windows and he would roll down his window and there would be these guys on the street corner selling Persian heroin in balloons and they had them in their mouth. Just the idea of buying heroin out of a balloon that had been in a drug dealer's mouth. I guess I'm too uptight and puritanical, man. When I buy my heroin on the streets of LA, I do not like it. <laughs> I know other places that people keep their heroin balloons. Oh, okay. <laughs> the mouth would definitely be my preferred <laughs> orifice, if you will. <laughs> oh. Are we ready to talk about the video? Let's talk about the video. This video was shot in Indianapolis. Yeah, Market, Market Square, Square Arena. Arena. So they shot this one July 18th, 1987. They had Wayne Isham, who was their go-to guy for videos. They had him shoot the video. And as they're about to shoot the video, he said, Nikki said what he always says to me, I don't want the same old Bon Jovi shit. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided to do a over-the-top live video of their concert. They put cameras on everybody, put one on Tommy Lee's revolving That was the coolest drum. Man. I remember, I mean, I would watch the video just for that. I mean, you got the nasty habits out there looking hot. And I was more into Tommy's drums at that point <laughs> because it was so cool what they did. Nikki refused to have a camera on him. They took another camera and put it inside of a plexiglass bubble. Like that gerbil ball. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you'll remember, that's what Bon Jovi did too. They did that on another video. So he literally Bad was. Medicine, yeah. Yes. He literally was stealing these ideas and using them for Bon Jovi. <laughs> but Motley fans being who they are, they immediately broke the glass ball and the destroyed thing, the yeah. camera. Right. <laughs> Here's what Wayne Isham said. He said, the problem was that Motley had this thing called the double bubble. They'd give you a bottle of Jack Daniels before the show and shout double bubble, which meant you had to drink straight from the bottle until the bubbles went up twice. So I was trying to work the main camera on stage faced and Nikki came up behind me and bit me really hard in the arm and suddenly I had this searing pain and Nikki was standing in front of me laughing his head off he thought it was the funniest thing in the world <laughs> man to be the guy that shoots the Motley Crue videos and have that fame but have to pair it up with the madness of that band yes imagine being bit by Nikki Six at the time I would need a shot immediately <laughs> after seriously I, just, I would do a double bubble from a Purell bottle <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen to this. I was watching TV and I came across Sammy Hagar's world tour show. I don't know if you guys have seen that. And he goes around, he interviews uh, musicians, and he just happened to be talking to Tommy Lee. And he was asking him specifically about the interesting drum solos and the kits and sort of the roller coaster stuff that he likes to do. And Tommy Lee said, I went to a concert one time and the drummer there was somebody that I really loved and respected. His name was Tommy Aldridge. Oh, okay. And he yeah. said that, that Tommy Aldridge was going crazy on the drums. And then that was the time that people got up and went to the bathroom and it really bothered him. He's like, man, don't you understand how cool this guy is? Right. But he said there was a problem because it was like a wall of drums and you couldn't see what he was doing technically. And so he's like, that is something I need to fix. So people eyes will be on me when I drop. Yeah. I remember that he woke up and he was like, I had this dream of a spinning drum set and by gosh, he made it a reality. He did. It was amazing to see. And if you think about the logistics, you have to have every piece of equipment bolted down. Down. He's wearing like a lineman, like an electrical worker, use harness in a seat and having to play against gravity. And the guy plays like a madman. It was amazing to see. If you have not seen this video, you really owe it to yourself to go check it out. It's amazing. It is really amazing. And it does start off, you see the, the nasty habits almost immediately off the bat. And the story there is they had just hired those girls. Like they hadn't been working for the band very long. Right. And they were really the only two to audition. And Nikki, <laughs> when they got hired, Nikki almost immediately said, 
said, no effing the backup singers. Okay, guys, which was a little late because Vince had already tried his hand <laughs> at both of them right. unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully. Right. But then Amy Cannon, one of the two nasty habits, started... Uh, Given googly eyes to Mick Mars, and Mick Mars fell into the palm of her hand like a puddle of water. Yeah, Nikki said that that one guy that could be trusted was Mick. Yeah, you know, and in this case, she got him hook, line, and sinker, which was a problem because she was an employee of the band, and so you've got because of the way Mick is, you've got an employee leading him around by the nose. Yeah, you know, she passed away a few years ago. Yeah, she passed away in 2017. They had actually they actually got married and were married for like four years, I think. Yeah. I've been trying to figure out why the riff is so effective. I think it's because in a lot of modern pop music, we're used to hearing songs in multiples of four. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. What this one does, it adds an extra two beats. So basically the riff stretches out over 10 beats. And I think that extra little two beats of anticipation when it makes it even, even more effective when it comes back in. Second single released August of 1987. What was the first single, Jason? Let's go on to the first single. That song was <laughs> called Girls, Girls, Girls. what you got to love about this song is i mean they always say you're supposed to write what you know i mean it's a pretty simple straightforward rock <laughs> but oh my god the enthusiasm that comes through about the subject matter on this song this is the song that caused me to start listening to Motley Crue. To be specific, this was the video that I saw that I said, <laughs> I really, really like Motley Crue. <laughs> I think they have some really good music. <laughs> like a trip down memory lane, huh? <laughs> like we said, this was the first single. This reached number 12 on the Hot 100. This became the stripper anthem. Because it's literally a song about strippers. You know, you always hear about people going to Major League Baseball parks, trying to make it a thing to see every major park. I was wondering if someone's ever done like a stripper log instead of a travel log, <laughs> trying to see all these clubs in one trip. So you teed me up right there. So I've got to tell you about all the strip joints that are name checked in this song real quick. All right. You guys okay. ready for this? Yes. Here you go. The Dollhouse in Fort Lauderdale. They hung out there in 1984 during the Theater of Pain tour. Tattletales Lounge is in Atlanta. Interesting thing about this, in 2009, one of the dancers claimed to have hooked up with Josh Duhamel, guy who was married to Fergie. He's an actor. Uh, okay. Had some controversy there. You've got the Seventh Vale in LA. This is still open. This is actually where the music video was filmed. And according to one dancer, there's still tons of cocaine passing through the Seventh Vale. No. Yes. Crazy Horse in Paris, France. It's still open. Celebrity sightings at Crazy Horse Paris, France. You ready for this? Scarlett Johansson, Rihanna, Lana Del Rey, Robin Thicke, Kevin Costner. This is like that place that Clark goes to with Ellen in European vacation. <laughs> kind of a fancier place. It's one of the landmarks. It is. A, it's you go to the Louvre. <laughs> you go Eiffel to the Eiffel Tower. Tower. Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse. All right. You've got the Body Shop in L.A. You can tell by the giant sign outside that says... Girls girls, 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 girls. Then you've got the Marble Arch in Vancouver. Tommy Lee and Vince Neil had their own VIP section in this place. It has been closed and condemned. It looks like bombs went off at this place. After its heyday in the 80s, it was purchased and turned into a cleaner karaoke club run by Mormons. <laughs> this uh, new rebranding didn't work. Imagine that. They even invited Motley Crue to come check it out. Guess who didn't show up? Motley Crue. Motley Crue. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> Lastly, you have the Tropicana. Vince yeah. lost his heart in Tropicana. It's known for oil wrestling and mud wrestling. So there you go. So April 12th, 1987, Tommy Lee, Wayne Isham, and Nikki Six are doing a tour to find the perfect place to shoot the Girls, Girls, Girls video. And Nikki points out Wayne really gets where we come from. It's just a shame that that bastard steals our ideas for Bon Jovi. <laughs> so they shot the video at the Seventh Veil. When they got done shooting at the Seventh Veil, they said, okay, let's go over to Wayne's studio. We're going to shoot some insert shots at the studio location. And so Wayne is with Tommy and one limo and Nikki is left in another limo. And Wayne says, you know what? Let's stop at this Mexican food place and get some shooters. <laughs> and Tommy's like, all right, man. Shooters and strippers. And so when they walk in the door, Nikki Six is already there with a line of shooters. And he looks up and he's like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> it wasn't a line of shooters for them. He had no idea they were coming. It was all for him because Nikki doesn't go halfway. He goes zero or 10. That's, That's right. it. You know, you mentioned the unedited version. They actually sent the unedited version to MTV and said, this is our video for girls, 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 knowing full well that they were going to reject it. So what happens? Sure enough, MTV rejects it. They send in the video they actually want. And that's the one we got. It worked. It worked. It was the number one video. Like they had some sort of battle of the bands or whatever. It was like Dial MTV, right? Yes. Something like that where they won and then they won again and they won again. And like 14 times in a row, <laughs> they won. And like, really? We won again? <laughs> and so finally, MTV just took them off. It wasn't even that they lost. They took them off and they established what was called the crew rule. You can't go more than what I guess, 14 times yeah. <laughs> before you're done. Yeah, as usual, some parts of Vince's lyrics always make me perk up my ears. Like he says, talks about someone telling him a story. And I've always wondered what story you wanted the stripper to tell him. <laughs> I always pictured some obscure Dr. Seuss book like, oh, the strip clubs you will see or something like that. <laughs> it doesn't give us much clue beyond that. Okay. I've got a question for you guys. Do you all know who Marjorie Ann Orban is? No. Did you come across this? I did not. Okay. Marjorie Ann Orban is one of the girls in the video. She worked at the dollhouse in Fort Lauderdale. In 2009, she was convicted of murder for her husband, Jay Orban. So here's the deal. Jay Orban was found in the desert, wrapped in a trash bag. She cut him up like they cut him up, headless, armless, legless, torso, and put in like a giant cooler and buried in the desert. She was seen buying the equipment for the murder. Oh my gosh. So actually, one of the girls in the video is doing life in prison for killing her husband. Cooler I'm, buried I'm in the I'm really desert. glad that you explained that because I thought, man, he has to be a really small guy to fit inside of a cooler. <laughs> he found his torso. Oh, when they were interviewing the girls to appear in this video, Wayne Isham said there's a lot of beautiful girls, but a lot of them couldn't dance. So they, their dancing was not up to standards. So actually, the girl in the fishnet stockings <laughs> at the very beginning of the video, she is a hired dancer. <sighs> I could just imagine somebody turning off the video. Oh my gosh, these girls can't dance. <laughs> that was not a toe drag or whatever. <laughs> hey, I do I do have one story about this. So they were working on the song before the video, and Mick Mars wasn't really happy with the riff that he had come up with. And so he had talked to Nikki and he said, Hey man, I'm gonna tweak that riff. And he goes, I'm gonna do an A-ball of cocaine tonight, and when I come back in the morning, I'm gonna have a better riff. Sure enough, that worked, and here we go. You, you always hear about Steven Tower and Joe Perry saying they consume the gross national product of Columbia or whatever back in their day. <laughs>
You gotta wonder what the crew consumed. Yeah, Nikki Six by himself was a force to be reckoned with. Tommy Lee at least had to work around Heather Locklear's schedule. (laughs) 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 Oh, mom's home. That's right. Stuff up. Straighten up, everybody. A lot of people don't realize this. Tommy Lee is kind of a savant on drums. He's not like a Neil Peart type player, but he always seems to find something cool to spice up every song. He would find the soul of that song in the drums. A friend of mine named Carrie Smith made me a cassette recording of her Shout at the Devil album my freshman year in high school. And uh, I was just starting to play drums still at that time. I spent way too much time trying to figure out those tracks. Obviously, when my mom wasn't around, because they won't have to explain shouting at the devil. So. It's at, Mom. At. <laughs> I was going to make mention, there's a scene in the video where Vince actually throws a girl over his shoulder and is carrying her out. That is Sharice Neal. They actually got married. Oh, my gosh. He married that girl. Okay. She's actually the mother of Skylar Neal, the girl who developed cancer and died. Oh, all right. We'd bring it down. Well, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. Can I tell you the story of how Wayne met the guys from Motley Crue? Sure. Okay, so he was a stage manager for the A&M soundstage in L.A., and Motley came in to shoot the Shout at the Devil video. Before the video, the, all the members of the band are like, we need some Jack Daniels. What do you, uh? Nobody had anything except for Wayne. Wayne, he's like, I got a bottle of Jack in my office, actually. I'm like, okay, great. He said, first video, and they drank his entire bottle <laughs> before the shoot. <laughs> But it was a great meeting because the very first video that he shot for them was the Smoking in the Boys Room video and then Home Sweet Home, both of which really put them on the map as far as MTV is concerned. But again, he routinely had to deal with Nikki complaining about stealing his stuff for Bon Jovi. And at one point, Nikki actually sucker punched him and said, F you, Wayne, stop stealing our stuff. <laughs> I saw the crew twice, uh, first back in 87, and a second time in 2006 when were the reunion tours when my wife was eight months pregnant, which may explain why my daughter loves 80s <laughs> metal and all. But yeah, I think they played both of these songs, Wild Side and Girls, 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 at both shows. These two right out of the gate are bangers. Yep. So what have we got for number three? The third song in the album is a song called Dancing on Glass. Beginning of this song makes me feel like you're about to introduce me to the villain in some sort of dark 90s movie. Okay. It's just dirty it's and dark rough and, and like you get ready to be introduced to the devil. The story behind this song, mm-hmm. you can tell by the words, it's very autobiographical, right? Right. So you've got things like Found Me in the Trash, Silver Spoon and Needle, Witchy Tombstone Smile, and I Engrave My Veins with Style. Yeah, this, the full line is Valentine's in London, Found Me in the Trash. That is a reference to that I mentioned before, February 1986. He's getting some drugs from a hyped out druggie. And when he does them and dies, the druggie panics and throws him into a dumpster. Even before he throws him in the trash, he beats him to death with a baseball bat (laughs) because the guy doesn't know what to do. And to try to revive him, he 
thumps him with a baseball bat. That's, I think they teach that in CPR. <laughs> Actually turned blue and he woke up in the trash bin. And then does he stop? No, no he doesn't stop. I remember reading that this song was written after the band or management or somebody attempted a little intervention. They had some counselor waiting to meet up with him. Of course, Nikki stomped out, but the counselor followed him and told him, so look, I can help you kick heroin without going to rehab. And they went to his house, threw out all the needles and other paraphernalia laying around. And um, Nikki said he sat down and wrote this song that night. Bob Timmons was actually the guy that night he wrote Dancing on Glass. One of the biggest problems I have with this album, and there are a lot of things I like, is a lot of times the lyrics seem a bit just thrown out there. They didn't put a lot of thought into them. It's not the case on this song. I think this contains some of Nikki's best lyrics on the album. There's some really good lyrics on here. And because like you said, they are writing what they know. And this was, this was his life at that point. Apparently the July 5th show in 87 in Memphis, they're playing this song. And during the song, a guy in the crowd throws a bindle of drugs onto the stage and then mimes shooting up at Nikki as if it were a, you know, thank you or something. Yeah. Later on that night, he says, I have a story about a girl, a banana, and some leftover fireworks. <laughs> but I'm too tired to tell it. Oh my my imagination just ran wild with that one. <laughs> the interesting thing to me on this song is it's you have lyrics like, I've been through hell and I'm never going back. And then like right after that, I need one more rush. Then I know, I know I'll stop. And so it's very similar to those feelings of I'm totally quitting. I'm out. I'm never doing this again. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, need another rush. Yeah, this was a gritty song. In some ways, it took me back to the Too Fast for Love, Shout at the Devil era. Of course, then we go to our gospel interlude, which took me by shock the first time I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought these first three songs, they're gritty, they're kind of sleazy, they're kind of dirty. They're almost pre-appetite for destruction, underbelly of LA type of feel. Yeah, it's funny because this was before Guns N' Roses hit big, but he was already friends with Slash. He talks about how Slash had this band that they had put together and they really hadn't hit it big yet. And he said, I want to get you guys an opening slot on our show. But at that point... They had Whitesnake opening for him, but he was ready to get rid of them and get Slash and Axel doing the opening set. If you hear the story from our other Motley Crue episode about the second death of Nikki Six, Slash was there and freaking out and actually got punched out by his girlfriend. <laughs> Check out our Dr. Feelgood episode for that story. And I did a little research just out of curiosity. It appears that the girl doing the backup gospel vocals was named Phyllis St. James. Okay. It was a Motown had a pretty extensive Motown pedigree, but yeah. she'd also done vocals for like backing vocals, I think for Paul Young and Pink Floyd on occasion. So she had some serious gospel chops. And it was just interesting to hear hear her thrown into a crew song. Yeah, sweet Chiva, you are my Jesus, is what she. Said. Yeah, and I had no idea what Chiva was at the time, being a you know a boy growing up in rural North Louisiana. Interesting, that was a slang term for heroin. All right. Anything else on this one? To me, this is this is number three song on the album. Number one is number one. Number two is number two. And number three is number three. Okay. Song number four is called Bad Boy Boogie.
Well, they're coming strong with the blues on this one. Yeah, they are. I enjoy this song a lot. Not quite a rocker, but not a skipper either. It's not a skipper. Absolutely not. James, where are you with this one, man? Usually it's a skipper. I don't know. It just felt too formulaic at this point. There's some fun parts to it, like the drums are fun. Mick Morris plays great. But it just was almost like a Mad Libs sleazy lyric song. Although, you know, all this talk of pies and honey jars and 36, 28, 38 and all that. It sounds like he's singing about Jessica Rabbit, but I don't know. (laughs) Hey, I looked this up. 38, 28, 38 is clearly measurements, right? Giant boobs, small waist, big butt, right? So I looked up Anna Nicole Smith. When she did Playboy in May of 1992, her measurements were 36, 26, 38. So pretty close. About as close as you can get. Okay. The lyrics of this song were featured in a prominent advertising campaign a few years ago. Any guesses on the company? You got me. Okay. The lyric goes, we're innocent in every way, like apple pie and Chevrolet. (sighs) It was on a Chevrolet commercial. Okay. Yeah. Better lock up your daughters when the Motley's hit the road. No truer words have ever been spoken. Okay. So I got to tell an on the road story. All right. Yes. Okay. So we got Fred Saunders. Yes. Right. So Fred Saunders was the former Hell's Angel who they had as their head of security. And Fred would routinely have to enact security upon them. <laughs> he he broke Tommy Lee's nose. <laughs> yes. He broke Nikki Six's ribs at one point because he was out of control. And he said, and I routinely beat the <laughs> out of Vince Neal because, well, He's an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And this is called fun in 1987. (laughs) I don't know why these guys got a bad boy rep. When I started listening to this album, I really did try to keep just a track of lyrical felonies. I gave up after the first time. <laughs> oh, we're about to get into some of the more serious felonies. Here that sounds like that sounds like a great band name right there. We're the lyrical felonies. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> you write that down. <laughs> Moving on to one of the more interesting songs on this album. Musically, it's interesting the way it's recorded, and I'm not going to say something bad about a song about someone's grandmother. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Nikki Six had a horrible relationship with his mother. We mentioned she kind of went through men routinely and would run off with men and leave him with basically strangers, and so he ended up being raised by his grandparents quite a bit, right? Tom Reese and Nona. Mm-hmm. And Nona was a mother figure for him that he did not have. He truly loved her deeply 
And then I believe it was in 85 or 86, she passed away, but he was so strung out at that point, he could not force himself to go to her funeral. And he was so depressed about the fact that he was this strung out that he sat down and while watching TV, wrote this song. Tom was the good old boy granddad that would take him hunting and fishing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He actually eventually came out to see Nikki uh, a few times and after the funeral and everything. And he would try, Nikki would try to clean himself up, but basically could only get to the stage where he would just do a little bit of drugs to get him through the day instead of the mountain that he would normally do. And he was trying to hide it from Tom, but Tom knew better. But Tom said, you know, I can't, I can't fix him. He's got to choose to fix himself. And he said, so he'd be kind of strung out and people would come to the door and I'd just let him in. Usually it was girls. And unless they looked too darn young, I wouldn't let those girls in or if they were drug dealers, and then I would tell them they got to go. Right. He said, one old boy got a little persistent until I waved a shotgun in his face. <laughs> he didn't come back again after that. Yeah. With songs like this, I mean, you get the idea that there's a pretty keen melodic and musical sense lurking behind Nikki and probably the other guys. They don't show it all the time, but when they do, it really makes you wonder what they could have done. They didn't have so much heroin in their blood system at the time. Yeah. Well, what they could have done was Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood, that's right. Which was the number one album that they had. So there you go. I'm not sure if it was this song, but in in January, just a little while before he had the little tryst with Becky from Wildside, (laughs) um, he showed up to practice, started teaching Tommy and Mick this song. And then Tommy's like, dude, what's on your hand? And it was that his veins had all collapsed. And that it just looked so bad that it looked like he had been had this weird tattoo or something. And he got up, he's like, I go to the bathroom. And then he didn't come back. So he comes back in on the next day. He sits down and he starts teaching them this new song that he's written. And he's like, and they were really getting it. And then I realized, oh, this is the same song I was trying to teach them yesterday. (laughs) It's in bad shape. It's in bad shape. Hit stop on your tape player, kick it out, flip it over, side two. And we start off with a song called Five Years Dead. Okay, so as we were doing our text exchange over the week, I gave you a hot take on this one. And I said, I think this is the most underrated song on the album. I also said it sounds a whole lot like another song that was big in 1987. Right. You remember what I said it sounded like? Once Bitten, Twice Shy by Great White. Yeah. It's, it's got the same rhythm. It's obviously got, you know, heavy, crunchy guitars instead of the piano that Once Bitten has. But if you listen to Five Years Dead and then you sing My, 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 it's the same melody. Yep. Yeah, and they, they both have that same bluesy style about them. These two songs are super close. I almost fell over when you said that because you nailed it. This is another one of those songs that have grown on me after repeated listening over the last few days. Musically, it's fun to listen to. Mick Mars is doing some cool bluesy metal stuff on his guitar. Tommy Lee doing the cool drum breaks. I wouldn't put this in the top tier on the album, but it's definitely crept into my top five. Wow. See, this is a skipper for me. Oh, my God. This is a skipper. It's okay. (laughs) 
It just doesn't stand out from the crowd. I think that if they had released this one and released it before Once Bit and everybody would be like, Great White's just a knockoff of <laughs> Five Years Dead. That's the real song. Okay. You were entranced by Sexy Sue from Hong Kong or what? Well, who wouldn't be? <laughs> so here's the story. February 19th, 1987. Nikki Six goes to an antique bookstore and picks up a book called Five Years Dead. And he said it just seemed kind of fitting. And then he says, what is it about antiques that intrigues me? There's a feeling of history, a story not so plain to see that it seeps from the wood. It somehow makes me feel comfortable. I almost bought an old coffin today, but I couldn't think of where to keep it in this house. <laughs> Wow. Maybe he should go live with Phil Spector. <laughs> <laughs> the old glass coffin, Phil Spector. So that was February 19th, February 20th, four in the morning. So I've started writing a song called Five Years Dead. I guess it's another attempt at capturing what Aerosmith did on their first album. What a great record. It brings back all the best and worst memories of Seattle. How I survived those days, I'll never know. So thinking about Aerosmith and this kind of bluesy style, I can definitely hear the similarities. Yeah, I agree. Lyrically, it's an interesting turn of phrase. It sounds like they're given some sort of scenario where somebody's in jail for another one of those lyrical felonies we discussed. But <laughs> this time they're away for five years. And it's the phrase five years dead seems like an interesting way of describing that situation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because just like you mentioned just a second ago, he mentions himself. He's like, we recorded Five Years Dead today, and it sounds badass. I don't know how I'm writing songs like this when I'm this close to dying. I wonder what it would be like if I were writing songs straight. Wow. Here's a quote from Nikki Six on this one. The lyrics are very raw. Wild Side, Girls, 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 and Five Years Dead are great examples where I felt like I really nailed it. There you go. Okay. All right. Here we go. Second song on side two. This song's called All in the Name of. Talk about lyrical felonies. <laughs> if this song were a person, it could not go within 100 yards of certain schools. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know who this song is written about, right? No. I'm about to blow your doors off, man. Yeah. So the first line of the song is, she's only 15. She's the reason, the reason I can't sleep. This song is written about Tracy Lords, one of the most infamous porn stars in history. Tracy Lords had gone to Hollywood to become a star at 15 years old. She convinced the porn directors that she was old enough to be in the show. Right. Well, she just happened to be in the July 1984 Penthouse magazine. That just so happened to be the one that featured pictures from Vanessa Williams, Miss America. And so that had so much staying power. Bob Guccione made $14 million from that issue alone. Wow. As a 14-year-old at the time, I can neither confirm nor deny that we looked at that, but... <laughs> Well, I've mentioned the cousins in California, the twins that I went and saw the rated R movies with at a very young age. They also had a large collection of magazines, and I may have seen one of I may have seen that Vanessa Williams 
<laughs> Inadvertently, yes. Yeah, that's right. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> Flashback to the Top Gun series. Wasn't it Terry Nunn from Berlin who also had a similar 15-year-old experience or something? Okay. That's exactly yep. right. Almost exactly eight years before, yes. Terry Nunn, lead singer of Berlin, who sang Take My Breath Away. Go back to our Top Gun soundtrack episode. Check that one out. Yep. Okay, so we talked about how Children of the Night is a song designed to start concerts. All in the Name of is a song designed to start concerts. In fact, this was the opening track for the Motley Crue segment of the Moscow Peace Festival. When Motley Crue and Scorpions and Bon Jovi and Skid Row and Cinderella and Gorky Park went over and played this massive concert in Moscow. Scorpion should have written a song about that. <laughs> Well, the CIA did. We uh, <laughs> we need to talk about that sometime. If you guys have ever seen the movie Like Father, Like Son, starring Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron, dropped in 1987, is one of those body switch movies, right? Yep. Kind of like uh, Vice Versa and Freaky Friday and some of those. 18 again. 18 again. There's a lot of them, right? Yeah. In the movie Like Father, Like Son, they use this song all in the name of, and they also use Wild Side. Wild Side got used. I remember was I've seen it on The Office and other places. It's been all over the place. Yeah. I know if y'all see me twirling the drumsticks in the background. I do. That's just because we're mentioning Tommy Lee. <laughs> when I was younger, I taped the videos off MTV for... Um, looks to kill and too young to fall in love and i would pause him over and over to watch the spot where he just looks in the camera and goes like that i said okay one day one day gentlemen i will do that <laughs> and it's easy to fake but it looks so cool when you did it in the videos well done i told you guys that i was watching the dirt last night you know for research purposes uh, yeah for sure and uh, before my daughter walked in i had to stop halfway through the middle <laughs> but that's a great scene where he sits down and starts talking to nikki for the first time and he's got his drumstick with him and he starts twirling it around and nikki's like where'd you learn to do that and he's like i was in marching band <laughs> <laughs> hey i've got a road story can i tell this road story sure okay so <laughs> They did all kinds of crazy stuff. One particular night, Nikki talked about how all four guys from the band went down to the hotel lobby bar. They pulled out their white snakes and laid them on the bar. <laughs> they poured Jack Daniels over all four. You, know? you mean my Johnson? <laughs> Your Johnson. Yeah. They lit it on fire. Oh, my God. Okay. And the next the next morning, Nikki Six couldn't understand why he was missing hair. His pubes were burned off. <laughs> if we had a uh, if we had a manscaped episode, that would be a great tie-in right there. So you mentioned Guns and Roses. His deal with Slash, he's like, I love Slash, but he would always piss my bed. Like he would get so blitzed out drunk, he would piss the bed. And he goes, and one night when we were on tour together, he goes in the hotel room. He can't even make it up to his room. He's so drunk. He falls asleep on the couch and pisses the couch. <laughs> then he wakes up and he realizes He's in the wrong hotel. <laughs> so he has to get out. It's freezing cold outside, and he's wandering around in the streets with free, with basically no clothes on and his pants wet with piss, and it's freezing cold outside. <laughs> I listened to a story last night. Nikki Six talking about how he woke up, hung over, not sure what happened when he puts the clues together. It's kind of like the hangover. He realized that he sawed Fred Sanders' bed in half and tried to push the couch out the window. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So there you go. That is Keith Moon approved rock star behavior. 
This is a skipper for me. This is a skipper? I just feel like I need to take a shower after I listen to it. The sleaze factor got dialed up a few notches on that one. <laughs> this is a definite skipper for me. This is, and not because of the subject matter, not that I cared one way or the other, but it's just, I don't think it's a good song. Okay. You guys are both wrong, but <laughs> speaking of filler music, let's move on to the next song. This song's called Something for Nothing. This is a skipper for me. This song, I can really hear the influence of Rick Nielsen on this one. This sounds Rick like Rick Nielsen. Yeah, wow, this sounds okay. like a cheap trick song. And he and Nikki Six were very good friends. They were good friends. He looked at Nikki looked at him as a mentor and discusses how he would call Rick up and try to act straight. And then he'd be like, hold on for a minute. And then he'd go shoot up, throw up, come back to the phone. And Rick was the kind of guy that would still be there, ready to listen to whatever it was he had to say. This song reminds me of Rattlesnake Shake from Dr. Feelgood. It's just the cowbell. <laughs> it's just a little bit goofy. I got me. a fever. <laughs> the only yeah, cure is more cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> it's total yeah. filler, in my opinion. So Yeah, it, it's kind of a skipper for me. And I, and I guess Vince didn't mean the lyrics literally because he says, I've got a toy guaranteed to put the spring back in your socks. <laughs> the number one selling toys in 87 were like Teddy Ruxpin and Cabbage Patch Dolls. So I'm assuming he wasn't referring to that. <laughs> also, 63-16. Once again, lyrical felony. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the lyrics are goofy. The music doesn't really capture me. For me, this is really the only surefire skipper on the album. Agree. This is a definite skipper for me as well. No argument here. No? Definite skipper. Wow, all three on this one. Okay. All right, moving on to the next song in the album. This song is called You're All I Need. D, the floor is yours. What, you making me tell this story? No, I just want your opinion first before we tell the story. Okay. This, okay, so just to start off, this is the song with the best story with the worst music. This was my other hot take of the week. This song sounds like me when I was 17 with my four-track recorder. This song is not a well-made song. I don't like it at all. James? There is something a little off about the production. I don't know if it's piano or keyboard or the drums have too much reverb on them, but something does sound strange about it. I don't think it's a bad song. I actually like the song. Probably never made many make-out lists of 1987 for obvious reasons. <laughs> By crew standards. You're wrong it. about that, but keep going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dude, if By you're putting this on your makeout list and the girl uh, has any idea this, what it's about, she's going to be like, what is wrong with you, you freak? Well, that's the whole key, right? This was my secret weapon in 87, but keep uh, going. 
Oh my god! Yeah, I, I just, you should keep it a secret. <laughs> crew ballads. I don't think this was a bad song. Okay. All right, James, you may want to step back because I'm about to spike the football, <laughs> spike the volleyball, dunk the basketball. Okay, this is my favorite song on this album. Oh my god! I absolutely love it, and the story behind it is incredibly cool. But the music to me is so sad, heartbreaking. I agree, it's sad. Intense. <laughs> no, 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 no. See, I know. Well, I agree with all that. It's just listening to it now, it sounds a little odd as far as the production goes. Oh my gosh. I, I think it's beautiful. This song was praised by John Bon Jovi as the greatest Motley Crue ballad of all time. I was going to tell you, you are at least in good company because John Bon Jovi did love this song. Yes. Shall we tell the story? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so this this song came about on March 6, 1987. They were in the studio, and Tommy, he started playing the little piece on the piano in the other room, and Nikki came in. They sat down together. They wrote, these are his words, we wrote a gorgeous song that Barry... Manilow would be proud of. <laughs> now, he writes this song, but the lyrics are the important part. So he had been dating this girl named Nicole. We right. don't know Nicole's last name, but he had been dating this girl, Nicole, and she was apparently pretty awesome, but he was confident that she had had an affair while they were on the Theater of Pain tour. Because I'm sure Nikki was completely celibate the entire time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. The second part is he believes she had an affair with a soap opera star named Jack Wagner. Yes. Now, as it happens, Jack Wagner also did a bit of singing himself. Yeah. And he is among one of the one-hit wonders of the 80s with a song called All I Need. You're blowing my mind right here, man. You are blowing my mind. <laughs> Play that song right here. I do remember this one from a high school dancer here. It was huge in 1984. I mean, thank God it wasn't Michael Damien she was cheating on him with. <laughs> that is a deep cut right there, man. Michael Damien with Rock On. Okay, so I'm going to go on record right now and say that Jack Wagner's song is a thousand times better than this piece of crap. Get out of here. <laughs> that is the worst take of all time right there. I love that song. I am not a pop guy. I'm a hard, heavy metal guy, but that song was a song I remember, and this song is a song I want to forget. Oh, my God. You have been wrong many times before, but this is the most egregious thing you've ever said on this uh, podcast. So, anyway, so he's... He actually says, he goes, the fact that I had had sex with over 200 different people while I was on that <laughs> tour didn't even enter into my mental equation. <laughs> so he writes this song and it, <laughs> he says, I guess it's a take on Taxi Driver in the sense that if you really love somebody, you'd kill them so that nobody else can have them. Right? Yeah. No. Yeah. You psychopath. 
<laughs> so then the rest of the I'm following you logically. Keep going. <laughs> so then the rest of the story is he records this song, and then once they have the track down, he gleefully takes it over to her house. Now these Nicole and he had done many, many drugs together. Right. And then they went to rehab together. And when they got done with rehab, they realized the only thing they had in common was drugs. Right. And so he broke up with her. She broke up with him, whatever it was, but she knows that he's got this suspicion about Jack Wagner, general hospital guy. He goes, he's like, I got the song I wrote for you. He doesn't tell her what it's about. He's like, I wrote this song for you. And when it starts playing and she realizes that the chorus includes the words, all I need, she's like, you asshole. Yeah. And she kicks him out. And after that, it gets not even to better. that lyrically it's about killing her. Yes. Yeah. I don't know that he, she even got that part, right? Okay. It's, it's pretty subtle. It's subtle. Right. Right. If you don't see the video, you don't quite get what it's really about. Okay. Then he thinks, I'm going to take this a step further. He literally calls a couple of pipe hitting guys yes. to go and break Jack Wagner's knees. He's like, this is where he rehearses. This is where they film General Hospital. I want you to find him and I want you to break his legs. So the next day, Nicole calls him and she's like, what did you do? Because Jack Wagner's legs have been broken. Yes. And he's like, oh yes. my gosh, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And then his <laughs> pipe hit and buddies call him up and they're like, hey, sorry, man, we couldn't find the we guy. We don't know where the guy is. I can, we couldn't. And he's like, <laughs> what? It turns out that Wagner had like fallen off of the stage during rehearsal and broken his own legs. It was just a weird the story Random on this is amazing. It's a crazy, crazy story. Well worth the time for the song, but yeah, definitely a skipper. I cannot believe you said it's the best song on the album. This is my favorite Motley Crue song of all time. Oh. Let me say that again. Uh, this is my favorite Motley Crue song of all time. This is where the record screeches. Now, once again. This is, okay, so what's better? This one or Man in the Mirror, Mr. Oh, tough call. Oh my god. Tough gosh. call. I Mr. love the thriller. <laughs> hey, listen, I was telling James that wherever you enter the Motley Crue universe, that's the soft spot that you have right there. So a lot of people entered with Dr. Feelgood. It was a mainstream album and they love Without You or they love Dr. Feelgood or same old situation. When I was 14 years old, this song captured me like another and I am super nostalgic. So I'm, I'm hanging on to that. This was the third single release. This is you got Wild Side, you got Girls, Girls, Girls. And you've got your all I need. This was released October 19th of 1987. The video was banned by MTV. Yeah. And effectively killing the song. Yeah. he's Wayne Isham said before the video, we had to talk about what we wanted. Uh, we'd seen this news story about a guy who had killed his girlfriend, which Nikki related to some events in his own life. Plus, he loved Sid and Nancy. So he kind of wanted a video about this kind of self-destructive relationship. Yeah. I know murder ballads have a long and storied place in Western <laughs> history, but I doubt that's what Nikki was thinking. <laughs> Back when I was in high school and this came out, the urban legend was okay. that this was based on a real story about someone killing. I mean, we had no idea about the Jack Wagner angle. And I checked with my wife, Leanna, and my sister, and they both were like, yeah, I thought that was about someone. Somebody who really killed someone. Okay, so here we go. April 2nd, 1987. Tommy, a guy named Dwayne Barron, and Nikki are all going fishing. They have done coke all night long, <laughs> and then they go out to the lake to go fishing, and they decide to come back in to get some beer. When they come back in, Doc McGee is there to greet them, and he said, hey, I just wanted to let you guys know, John Bon Jovi listened to your song, and he thinks it's the greatest, you've written the greatest song of your career. And so Nikki says, which song? And he says, you're all I need. And he said, did he listen to the lyrics? And Doc's like, 
like, why? What's it about? And he tells ah. him and Doc is like, you're an asshole. <laughs> this song has been called one of their best songs. It's also been called filler. It seems to me it's just a polarizing song. You either love it or you hate it. Skipper. I can hear Patreon member Cameron Eckert, my college buddy, laughing right now. He's destroying me in his mind. I'm going to get a phone call from him this week. Cameron always agrees with me. Cameron does agree with you and all you know, the time. Do you know why? He's my friend. Because he's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Spike the football. Best song in the album. Oh, my gosh. Hey, before we move on, somebody wants to say hi. Hey. Just poke their head in. Hannah, come say hi. Hi there. Hey. hey what How are is you? up? I'm good. How about y'all? You're the coolest girl in northern Louisiana that we know. Absolutely. 100%. Thank you. <laughs> you can't listen to this one. Uh, she, <laughs> yeah, this is a it's mature 17. We kept it pretty clean, given the fact, and we should have, given the fact that we all have daughters. All right. Are we moving on to the last track on the album now? Yeah. The thing they had to fill with. You can't not call this as a filler because they didn't have anything left to give. They had to pull some random piece out of the live set. Okay, let's get into it. This song is called Jailhouse Rock. Dude, Nick Mars is on display on this one. I have absolutely no trouble listening to Mick Mars wail on this particular song. I love the original Elvis version, listened to it all the time when I was a kid, and Mick is absolutely killing it. Tommy is absolutely killing it, as usual. Vince Neal's voice singing this song makes me want to dig my fingers into my ears. Oh. It's horrible. What are you talking about? Who are you? I Vince can sing some heavy, hard songs. I love his voice on a lot of stuff, but not this song. It's terrible. I think he sounds fantastic. No, no. I've heard Mick him sound sounds, a lot worse. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I saw him doing the... That was the worst ever, but this is a close <laughs> second, I think. James, where are you at this one, man? It's pretty clear they're out of material by this time. As far as covers go, I mean, I don't believe this was live. It feels like the live sound was piped into the studio. There's an old joke about Judas Priest that have a live album called Live in the East. People call it Live in the Studio. I think that's kind of what the situation here was. It seems kind of pointless, but from a musical standpoint, like D said, Mick is shredding all over the place on this one. During the chorus, Tommy Lee plays this really fast double bass shuffle like Alex Van Halen plays in Hot for Teacher and, and that alone but that, I won't skip it just because of that see they get a lot of crap for having a cover on the album but people seem to forget I mean Smoking in the Boys Room was a cover off of Theater of Pain it did pretty well people seem to love it I don't know why Jailhouse Rock is all of a sudden you know the worst thing ever but I think it's cool I think it sounds great. I think it sounds like a lot of fun. You know, this song was the reason why I really wanted to go see the concert when they came through my town. I also love the fact that my next door neighbor's dad, who is a huge Elvis fan, thought this was complete sacrilege. <laughs> 
Motley Crue tearing down Elvis, I thought was the coolest thing. I'm like, yes, Crue, not a skipper, love it. In fact, top down, turn it up. We know for a fact if it was live or not, because that's always been in the back of my head. Because he's telling some people they've got some effing jive, and I'm just wondering who he's talking to. <laughs> but I tell you, I mean, that's one of the musical things I've always wanted to learn how to play, that fast double bass shuffle. I keep working on it. One day I'm going to have it. But I remember my mom, who was also a huge Elvis fan, she actually liked this one. If you guys are listening out there and you know where and when this particular version of Jailhouse Rock was played, please let us know. Hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, shoot us an email, we'd love to know. By the way, Rolling Stone magazine called Jailhouse Rock the number 67 greatest song of all time. The Elvis version. The Elvis version. (laughs) I don't go out of my way to listen to this one. If I'm listening to the album that gets to it, I won't skip it. All right, before we get to final judgment, let's hear from our good friend, Pat Canagallo of the 30-something movie podcast. Let's hear what he has to say. Hey guys, Pat here to weigh in on White Snake 1987 versus Motley Crue, Girls, Girls, Girls. First of all, these are two fantastic albums. I love all of the music that is on there. The White Snake album, right from the get-go, you have hit after hit after hit. I remember getting this cassette when I was a kid and just listening to one side, flip it over, other side, flip it over, other side, just repeat over and over. What's best, you can still listen to it with the kids around. Moving over to Motley Crue, one of my favorite bands. I love listening to these guys. I love their sound. Hard to listen to them with the kids around, but that kind of goes part and parcel with the, what Motley Crue is all about. When you hit play, this album grabs you right away, right from that opening guitar riff that just kind of growls at you, right? You know, it, it catapults you into the album. Uh, throughout, the bass, drums, guitar are all super tight. They are right in the groove with each other. What a hard rocking sound. And then you put Vince Neil's vocals over the top and you just you just have this fantastic punch. What I really like too, Tommy Lee's drums, it seems almost turned up in the mix. Like they're almost putting the drums front and center to kind of like solidify the whole group. And I also really like that they've got a lot of kind of a bluesy, boogie-woogie style going on. The live track of Jailhouse Rock, like what a treat. That That's just fantastic stuff. Like I said, I'm a Motley Crue fan, so I, of course I'm going to say this, but every ballad they do... I love. And so, like, I'll get stuck on so many of these tunes on the album, and I'll keep hitting repeat, especially You're All I Need. I love it. How can you skip over the Girls, Girls, Girls video? I mean, like, I guess the best way to describe that video is that uh, it's one heck of a, a supplemental material to what they're teaching you in school and what your parents teach you about the birds and the bees. You got the Motley Crue Girls, Girls, Girls video, so that works. And, of course, Young Pat, Old Pat, I'm... You start with motorcycles, you end with motorcycles, so like I'm definitely hooked into that. I mean, let's be honest, you, you really had me at the kickstart of the motorcycle with this tune. Guys, thank you so much for a great show. I am, feel so fortunate to be able to listen to you guys each week and so blessed to be able to call you friends. Keep up all the fantastic work. Uh, if So if I've got to weigh in on file judgment um, and have to pick a better album, you can't. They're both awesome. Get both albums, listen to them on repeat. If I have to pick a favorite, I'd have to say... Hey, Jason, check that out, man. What D wear? Girls, girls, girls. <laughs> I love Pat so much. That is awesome. It's oh. <laughs> the best ending I think we've ever had. <laughs> Pat, Pat, you knocked that one out of the park, first of all. Thank you so much. If you haven't listened to 30-something movie podcast, check them out. Just for the record, me, John Bon Jovi, and Pat are all on board with your only need. I, I mean, Pat's opinion weighs a little heavily for me, more than yours anyway. <laughs> Pat, thank you for doing that, buddy. We appreciate you. Go check them out. 30-something movie podcast.
Okay, guys, it is time for our final judgment. We know that Pat has weighed in and has picked Girls, Girls, Girls. It is now our time to say which of these two albums still holds water, still is the best. As Pat said, they are both fantastic albums. You should get both of them. You should listen to both of them. Yep. But one of them's better than the other one, at least we think so. James, why don't you lead us off, man? Okay, I'll preface all this by saying that I am also a big fan of both bands. When I first heard the Shout at the Devil album my freshman year, I was blown away and I was a fan of Motley Crue from that day forward. I'm also a huge fan of Whitesnake, so this is not an easy choice. But I go, I've gone back and listened to both albums a lot over the last few weeks, and the Whitesnake is just towering above the crew on this one to me. The songs on the Whitesnake album, the really good ones are so epic. Like Still of the Night, just a monster riff that still sounds great today, Crying in the Rain. The players, Coverdale and his crew assembled for this album, did an amazing job. And when I go back and listen to the album, I really don't skip anything. There are a few I like more than others, but I really like from front to back, there's not a big decrease in quality. Girls, girls, girls. The band members themselves I thought were playing really well. I'm a huge Tommy Lee fan, have been since day one. Mick turned in his stellar job. But there are great songs on this album, and there are songs that I instantaneously want to skip. And I'm afraid that the skippers outnumber the great ones on this album. Wild Side's an amazing song. Girls, Girls, Girls is a lot of fun. All I Need, I think it ranks up there among power ballad royalty maybe the lower tier but still a great song but they can't overcome songs like bad boy boogie all in the name of songs that instantly skip and just like we said earlier just kind of want to douse myself in purell after hearing occasionally (laughs) so the great songs are great but the bad songs are bad and i think if you put it on a scale white snake comes out ahead on this one all right you're up man okay so i'm 14 years old in 1987 this is my first step into metal. Granted, it's MTV metal, but it's metal for me as a young man. And I love both. And these were hugely impactful albums. So White Snake, when you go through, it's Still the Night. It's Here I Go Again. I love Don't Turn Away. Give Me All Your Love. Is This Love is a wonderful power ballad. When you look at Girls, 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 you've got Wild Side. You've got Dancing on Glass. You've got Girls, Girls, Girls. I love You're All I Need. There are some skippers. So for me, when I put these on on the scales, not only are White Snake's songs better and more of them, but I'm even going so far as to say the videos are better. So for me, White Snake outweighs Girls, Girls, Girls on this one. Although I tend to kind of lean towards Pat, buy both, listen to both, play both, have fun. But I'm spiking the football. White Snake 1987 is the better of these two albums. D. Okay, so. Motley Crue, the band's so nice, we've touched them twice. Yeah. When we did Skid Row versus Dr. Feel Good, before we before I listened to both albums, I was confident that I was not picking Motley Crue. Skid Row was just too strong, but by the time we were done with that one, I was like, crap, Dr. Feel Good is a fantastic album. And it is amazing what those guys can do when they are not in the deepest, darkest depths of drug addiction. True. Unfortunately, on this album, they were in the deepest, darkest depths of drug addiction, and I can tell they were struggling to put out some good songs. First two songs out of the gate, I would have been like, dang, this is obviously the better album. Wild Side kills it. Girls, Girls, Girls kills it. Number three, not a bad song, Dancing on Glass. I'll listen to it every time. But basically, after that, I could not listen to those songs for the rest of my life, and I'd be okay. With Theater of Pain, it was kind of the same thing. You had the two songs that really rocked the album and the rest of them were just blah with this one you got two really great songs one 
pretty darn good song and then pretty much blah after that for me. White Snake, on the other hand, oh my gosh, they have killer after killer after killer. And some of them are good as opposed to great, but the great ones are more great than even the greatest songs on this album. And so I, I'm, I got to make the decision unanimous here. White Snake 1987 is definitely the better album of these two girls 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 is definitely an album worth listening to first two songs definitely songs to hold on to but white snake white snake especially with those bonus tracks included oh yeah that is definitely the song that i will pick any day of the week walking out the door yeah you mentioned those bonus tracks the that album was so good you couldn't even fit all the good songs on it yeah well we want to hear from you guys how do we do do we get this right do we get this wrong how do you rank those two albums Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. James, thank you so much for being here for two episodes in a row for us. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to hang out with you guys, even if it is only digitally. I've had a blast and look forward to you guys every Tuesday morning. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, man. We really appreciate you coming on. All right, guys. Next week, we're still in summer of 1987. We're comparing RoboCop versus Predator. Oh, my God. Dude, it's going to be awesome. Yes. Can't wait for that one. Lots I of good stories. I will buy that there. episode for a dollar any day. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, be sure and hit that follow button or that subscribe button. Be sure if you uh, haven't already, give us a five-star review. If you, in your review, mention something about, you know, lighting your white snake on fire <laughs> or... Or something about the seventh veil, you know, that that will get you into the body shop, the marble arch. (laughs) Anyone will work. (laughs) Pick your flavor. Uh, That will get you entered into a contest to win one of our awesome custom engraved Ozarka tumblers. And if you would like to become an executive producer of one of our episodes and get access to our special Patreons only episodes, you can uh, become a member for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, you just go to patreon.com slash Shirley podcast. That's S U R E L Y podcast. Sign up for that. And you'll get to hear our takes on the one hit wonders of the eighties and beyond. That's right. That's right. We released our second one last Friday. So we've released video killed the radio star by the buggles and relaxed by Frankie goes to Hollywood. And next month we will be covering nothing compares to you by Prince slash Sinead O'Connor. That's right. It's going to be awesome. All right, guys. Thanks again. We will see you next week. Oh, okay. Gosh, I'm so glad we got through that episode without somebody finding some sort of connection to Dan Double N Huff. You know, D, I hate to break this to you. Uh, no. But back in, in the year of our Lord 2014, Big Machine Records, co-owned by Toby Keith, put out a tribute album to Motley Crue called Nashville's Outlaws, which featured a bunch of modern country guys reviewing Motley Crue hits. <sighs> And yes. most appropriate for this, uh, it gets better. Most appropriate for this podcast, Brantley Gilbert did a cover of Girls, Girls, Girls. Gretchen Wilson did a cover of Wild Side. Yes. That's prominent in the production of both tracks, Dan Huff. No. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> My man, Dan Huff, lead singer of Giant, had one great song in the Don't 90s. Do Don't do it. Called I'll See You in My Dreams. Oh. Yes!
the mighty Dan Hoff making another appearance. Said I quit. 